Okay, so like Carrie said, um, the topic of this talk is a crash course in scripture. And she said, I want you to talk for 45, 50 minutes, which if you do the math, every book of the Bible, I mean, that gives us about 30 seconds, 30 seconds on every book. So I really hope you guys have fast fingers because we're just going to, we're just going to blow through this. Um, but before we actually get into the content of scripture, I think it's prudent for us to really ask the question, why do we have scripture, right? Um, and anytime, so when I started my biblical theology program at John Paul the Great Catholic University, the first thing we do, the first class we take, biblical hermeneutics, it talks about this question, why do we have the Bible? I mean, have we ever asked ourselves this question, why did God give us scripture? I mean, God gave us scripture, right? Would you agree with me when I say that? So I think to answer that question, we have to we have to understand something about ourselves because scripture is a gift to us. That means we must need it. Why do we need it then? And I think we have to turn for we have to turn to philosophy to adequately answer this question of why God gave us scripture because philosophy is going to tell us apart from revelation because scripture is revelation, right? So theology employs divine revelation to tell us things about God and things about ourselves. Philosophy just employs our own natural reason, all right? So to understand ourselves apart from scripture, apart from divine revelation, we're going to employ philosophy. And so I'm just going to, I'm not going to quote anything for you, but you just have to take me on face value. If we go back to uh, the probably the three most well-known philosophers, all the way back in Greece, we go to uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, right? These guys ask these big questions. Who are we? What are we? What is our nature? And that's something we're going to continue, uh, we're going to address. What is our nature? And in addition, what is our purpose in life, right? And all of us have asked these questions at some point in our life. And philosophers, when we talk about purpose, what is the purpose of a thing, philosophers use the term end. What is the end of a thing? What is it moving towards? What is it directed towards? So we ask ourselves, what is the end of man? And the philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they had, a, they had a general consensus that the end of man is happiness. All right? So the end of man is happiness, but then we come to another question. We come to the question of how do you obtain happiness? And so the philosophers say, well, you obtain happiness. Man is happy when man obtains the good right? And they spoke of it in a broad manner. Good has all these instantiations, right? Your cheeseburger, your beer is good, right? It is serving a purpose. It's giving you pleasure, but at the same time, it's feeding you. It's serving a purpose. It's serving a greater good, right? That you can continue living, that you could do all these fruitful things with your life. But there has to be some ultimate good, right? So we can ask ourselves, what is the greatest good in existence, does anybody want to take a stab at that? What is the greatest good that exists? Yes. I would say that gets at our purpose, but I'm, going to talk, I'm talking about a thing. I'm going to give it away. I'm talking about a person. What is the greatest good that exists? It's really simple. God. God is the greatest good. God is, in fact, goodness itself, Right? We would agree with that. God is, its, is himself in his essence goodness itself. So we can put all these answers together. We could say the philosopher said that the end of man, his purpose, is to be happy. That to be happy, man has to obtain the good. And that the greatest good is God himself. Right? So in the end, man's end, man's purpose is to obtain God. To be in communion with God. That's what he was created for. But before you can obtain something, before you can be in communion with something, you have to know that thing or know that purpose or person, right? We can understand that. Before you be in an intimate relationship with someone, it's all about getting to know them, correct? Well, we run into another problem. So we're, we're needing to come to know God. And we know some things about God. Throw, th tell me some things about God. Don't be shy. 
I mean, God is omnipotent, right? Am I using big words? What does omnipotent mean? He's all-powerful. God is what? I mean, Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like, we know things about God. So in, in a word, I would say that we could sum up who God is by saying that he is infinite, right? God is infinite. Now, the problem that we encounter is that I have a finite mind. I have a finite mind, and I am trying to come to know something that is infinite. That is actually impossible. A finite mind cannot wrap itself around an infinite reality, okay? But what if God gives me infused knowledge, and what do I mean by infused knowledge? How many of you have heard that phrase before, infused knowledge? Infused knowledge? Okay. Not that many, but that's okay. So infused knowledge is in contrast to the natural manner in which we come to know something. So, for instance, we talk about Aristotle. He engaged this question a lot. He tried to understand how man comes to know things. And he said that man's knowledge is largely sense-based. So I come to know something through my senses. It doesn't necessarily just mean, like, senses in English we think very, like, touchy, you know? But it just means that I receive information through my body, right? And then I process it in my mind, and that's how I come to know something. Now, when we're talking about God, who's A, infinite, and B, is immaterial, how am I supposed to come to know him? Well, I can come to know him if he gives me infused knowledge. This means he implants knowledge to me that does not come to me through my senses, okay? He's going to give knowledge to me. So A, God can infuse knowledge about ourselves, about himself to us. And B, he can tell us about himself. So there's this story, perhaps some of you have heard of it before. There's this story of the, the blind men and the elephant. Does anybody know what I'm referring to? So there's this story, and people will use this story to illustrate how there's multiple religions, and we shouldn't be exclusive in our beliefs, and we shouldn't say that um, one religion has the fullness of truth. So the story of the elephant and the blind men goes something like, there's several blind men, five, six blind men, and they're in a room with this elephant, and they're trying to figure out what the elephant is. So one goes up to, to like the trunk and feels the trunk of the elephant, and he says it feels like the rope. It feels like a rope. The elephant must be like a rope. And another one goes up to the, the leg of the elephant and feels the elephant and says uh, the elephant feels like a tree. Uh, the elephant must be like a tree. Another one feels the body of the elephant and says, this feels like a wall. The elephant must be like a wall. And people will use this story to illustrate, see, none of the blind men is wrong. The elephant is like a rope. He has rope-like qualities. The elephant is like a tree. He has tree-like qualities. The elephant is like a wall. He has wall-like qualities. So nobody is wrong. It's just that in this story, it recognizes that we have a certain blindness to us, right? That we have an infinite mind trying to wrap our, our, our concepts around this, this infinite, did I say infinite mind? We have a finite mind trying to wrap our, our knowledge around this infinite thing, right? The story recognizes that. But what if the elephant were to speak and to tell the blind men who he is, right? So this story that people used to illustrate the truth of multiple religions, it fails to take into account that this divine entity, this elephant, could speak for itself. So what if God was to simply tell us who he is? So A, he can give us infused knowledge so that we don't have to rely on our senses, and B, he can just tell us who he is, right? This is what we have in divine revelation. And so St. Paul touches on this, actually. Um, if you go to um, Hebrews 1, I'm going to try to open my Bible one-handed, which is a lot more difficult than you think it is. A lot more difficult. So if you go to Hebrews, 
the letter to the Hebrews 1, 1. In many, St. Paul is saying this, in many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, right? God speaking to us. And I think here, St. Paul is in a way making the division that we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the first part of scripture, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, okay? He revealed himself in a veiled sort of way. But what does he go on to say? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. So not only does God speak to us about who he is, God comes down from heaven, takes on human flesh, stands in front of all of us, and says, this is who I am. Now, not only can we come to know God, but we can come to know him in that natural sort of way that I was talking about, right? He's, he's incarnate. He has human flesh to him. He can speak human words to us. He, he has, in these last days, spoken to us by a son, okay? So, we want to come to know God, but in the end, we want to come to obtain God as the greatest good, right? That's what I said. So we talked about knowing God, and we talked about why this book is important for knowing God, right? This contains all God's words to us about himself, okay? And then in the, the last section, the New Testament, it contains all the stories about Christ who became incarnate and just is. By living shows himself who he is, who God is, right? So that's why this book is important for coming to know God. But what, what about when we talk about coming to obtain God? When we, when we talk about coming to be in union with God? Well, we can go back to the idea of an end, a purpose, as the philosophers talk about, right? So the philosophers have this saying that the end of a thing determines its nature, or the end of a thing tells us about its nature. So let me give you an example. Um, you're a human being, but as humans, because of our intelligence, we're able to create things, right? Some of us are artists, some of us are engineers. We can, we can imitate God, and we can create things. So say you're a watchmaker. Well, how do you say, or how can you say, this object that I have, and I don't have a watch, but how can you say that this object that I have is a watch? Well, because you have made this watch to tell time, right? So the end, the purpose of this watch is to tell time. And because that is its purpose, I can know that its nature is a watch. So we talked about our purpose. Our purpose is to be in communion with God. Now we run into another problem, just like the problem that we ran into when we were talking about knowledge of God. So our purpose is to be in union with God. However, what kind of union does God have with himself? Does anybody get out what I'm, I'm throwing down? What kind of union does God have with himself? It's a Trinitarian union, right? So our God is three persons united in one divine nature. So if we want to be in communion with him, we essentially need to have a divine nature. Now, do we have a divine nature? No, we have a human nature, correct? So we encounter this problem. We have this longing to be in communion with God because our end is happiness and the end of, uh, to, to obtain happiness, we have to obtain the good. God is the greatest good, right? And so we, we need to be in communion with God. However, we do not have the divine nature necessary to be in Trinitarian communion, just like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is in Trinitarian communion with himself. But what if God were to give us a divine nature? And what if I told you that each one of you received a divine nature at your baptism? So, St. Athanasius has this phrase that sounds really controversial. And I want you to listen to it when I read it to you. He said, God became man that men might become gods. That sounds extremely controversial, doesn't it? There's only one God. But Athanasius says, God became man that men might become God.
gods. What does he mean by this? He's talking about the, the need that I'm just expressing for us to have a divine nature in order to be in communion with him. So God, in fact, gives us this divine nature by means of our baptism. And he prepares us for this gift by what he does in this book. And so now I'm going to move from part one of my talk into part two. And I'm going to start breaking open this story for you. And if you've ever been to any of my talks on scripture, I emphasize over and over and over again that to understand this book, you need to understand the concept of covenant. And the concept of covenant is intrinsically linked to everything we were just talking about. Because what is a covenant? I need you to pay attention with me. I'm going to give you an important definition. A covenant is an extension of kinship by oath. It sounds really big and possibly confusing, but if you just think about it, it's not. An extension of kinship by oath. And I'm going to give you two examples of covenant that exist in our society today for you, to help you understand. We have two forms of covenant in our society today. They are marriage and adoption. So let's take marriage. In a marriage, two people who are not related, hopefully, stand before each other at the altar. They make an oath to one another. And in making an oath, people, two people who had no blood relation whatsoever now enter into the most intimate human relationship known to man, right? An extension of kinship by oath. The same occurs with adoption. A man and a woman uh, wanting to uh, take a child who's not blood-related to them into their family, sign some papers, swear some oaths, and they make a child who's not have a blood relation to them their own family, right? So we're talking about God wanting to give us a divine nature in order to allow us to be in communion with him. And how does he do this? He does this by means of covenant an extension of kinship by oath. And so he's going to prepare us for the covenant of the sacraments that we receive. He's going to prepare all of humanity for this great promise that we receive in our day and age with the events in this book. So there are six covenants in this book that prepare, well, five covenants that prepare for the culminating covenant, which is going to come in Jesus and in the New Testament. How many of you have your Bibles? I'm just curious. (sighs) On your phone. I feel like that's kind of cheating, but it's not. It's like, yeah, I brought my Bible. It's on my phone. All right, so the first covenant. Can anybody tell me where they think the first covenant in Scripture occurs? Yes. Adam and Eve. Yeah. How do we know that the the story of Adam and Eve is a covenant? Well, the Jews said that they could understand um, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of creation, as a covenant precisely because, A, God creates the world in seven days. And the number seven in Hebrew is the same root word for covenant, to make a covenant. So by creating man... God is creating him in covenant with himself, okay? Now, so Adam is created in this state of intimate union with God, right? But what does he do? Everybody knows what happens. What does he do? He he falls, right? He sins, okay? So he breaks this intimate union with God, which is going to bring us, and I, I should note, in addition to God creating the world in seven days, we can know that Adam was created in the state of intimacy with God because when we get to one of the first genealogies in the first few chapters of the Bible, it says son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of Adam, son of God, son of God, right? So we know that Adam was created in this intimate state of covenant and he breaks that covenant and um, the intimacy is lost. So we come to the next covenant. Who can guess what the next covenant is? It's the next major story in scripture. Yes. No, that's going to come later. There's one in between that. Yes. Um, no, a covenant is not sworn between Cain and Abel. No, not yet. It's sooner than that. Noah! Ding, 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 Okay, so what do we have in Noah? We have 
a, what theologians like to call a recapitulation of Adam. What does recapitulation mean? It's just this big, fancy Latin word to make it sound like I am 11 days away from my master's degree, right? It's a big, fancy word that just means it, putting the head on top of it again, like when you decapitate somebody, you know. So you recapitulate something. I hope you're all done with your burgers. When you recapitulate something, you try to do it all over again. So in the Noahic Covenant, um, if you read it really carefully, you'll notice that there are a lot of similarities between the Noahic uh, story, the story of Noah, and the, the story of Adam. And you're like, I don't see them. I don't see a giant flood in Adam and Eve, right? Don't get what you're talking about. So let me give you a few examples really briefly. Um, Noah goes on to the ark, right? And um, there's floodwaters, and they're just floating on the floodwaters for like a really long time, right? And then after the floodwaters start to recede, we're told in Scripture that the dry land starts to come out of the waters, And if you pay attention, this is the same language used of the creation story. When God creates the earth, it says that he brings the dry land out of the water. So God wipes out all of humanity and literally recreates all over again. He takes the most righteous man that existed. He makes him, in a way, the new Adam. He he starts all over again, takes the dry land out of the water, and he's going to try again. Now, what's interesting is that if you pay attention, you'll see that Noah falls. And he falls in a way really similar to Adam. And I'm not going to go into too many of the details because I'm essentially trying to smush a 10-hour class that I gave into like 30 minutes. So that class was recorded, and I'll tell you guys where you can find it later, and you can get all the gushy details. But right now, I'll just really briefly try to give you some evidence of how Noah's fall is similar to Adam's. So if you remember, Noah gets off the ark when God tells him it's safe, when it's safe to get off the ark, and the land dries up. What is the first thing that Noah does? Does anybody remember what the first thing is that Noah does? This is great. I just love this. So he gets off the ark, and he plants a vineyard. And then he makes wine, likely, because it says that he got drunk off the vine. So he plants a vineyard, and in Hebrew, the idea of vineyard and garden is pretty much interchangeable. He plants a garden, and he overconsumes of the fruit, right? God told Adam, you can eat of any of the fruit that you want except the fruit of this tree. Adam overconsumes of the fruit. Noah does the exact same thing, right? Just like we had a recreation uh, to, to, to um, parallel the original creation story, we have a fall, very similar to the fall that occurred in Adam. So we're in the same situation as humanity, And God's going to make another covenant. But he's kind of going to change his strategy. But God never changes his strategy, right? It's his plan the entire time. But I think, and this is kind of a tangent, but when people people say, oh, if I was Adam or if I was Eve, I wouldn't have done that. Or why didn't God just give humanity another chance? I would venture to say God did give humanity another chance in Noah and it didn't work. It turned out the same way. And he let it happen so that when we say, if God had only given us another chance, he could say, I did. Okay? Turned out the same way. So he's going to make another covenant, and he's going to kind of change his strategy. Instead of trying to um, wipe out the whole world and raise up a righteous people, he's going to pick one man, and he's going to, from that man, raise up a righteous family who's going to grow into a righteous uh, tribe, who's going to grow into a righteous nation. And this nation is going to draw all the other nations to itself. And through this nation, according to the covenant that God makes, this, this nation is going to draw all the nations to itself, and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed because of this people. What is this one, who is this one person that I'm talking about? Abraham, okay? 
So God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. It's initially located in Genesis 12. And in this covenant, God makes three promises to Abraham. He makes first a promise that Abraham's descendants will be a great nation. He makes then a promise that Abraham's descendants will be a great name. And then he makes a promise that universal blessing will come through Abraham's descendants. And the whole rest of scripture falls neatly into this logical pattern. Because I said there are three promises, and we already covered three covenants, right? And I said there were six covenants total. So in this third covenant, there's three promises. And each of the consecutive three covenants that are made in scripture fulfill one of these three promises. So the first promise that God will make Abraham's descendants into a great nation is fulfilled in the covenant that occurs next with Moses. So um, the Israelites go into Egypt, right? They grow and grow and grow and grow. They become oppressed. They are made into slaves. And then God frees them, right? So they are no longer just this big family. They're no longer just this big clan. They have grown so large in Egypt that they are more numerous than the Egyptians, and the Egyptians fear them, so they put them into slavery. So God has fulfilled the promise to Abraham that his people, that Abraham's descendants, would be a great nation um, in Moses. Now, the next covenant, I just really briefly glazed over the Mosaic covenant, right? So the next covenant, we got 30 seconds of book, guys. Come on. The next covenant occurs with what figure? David, yes. And I would say David is actually at the height of the Old Testament. A lot of people think Moses is at the height of the Old Testament. I would say David is at the height of the Old Testament. So in David, we have the fulfillment of the second promise made to Abraham, the promise of a great name. Now in in ancient Near Eastern culture, to say someone would have a great name meant that they would be royalty. So God made a promise to Abraham that A, his descendants would be a great nation, and that B, they would become a monarchy. They would be royalty, right? And so we see this occur most prominently in the reign of David, okay? And David is the height of the Old Testament because we're going to see in David's reign, in the Davidic covenant, in what occurs in the figure of David and Solomon, we're going to see um, a prefigurement of what is going to come in Christ, okay? So, um, what do I want to say about David? There's so many things you could say about David. But there's one thing in particular I wanted to say about David, and I'm trying to find it in my notes right now. What I want to say about David is this. Why is David unique? David is the first figure, the first Israelite figure, the first figure in the Old Testament to encounter non-Jewish people, to encounter foreigners, and he is not converted to their pagan religion like so many of the Jews are. He, in fact, converts them to Judaism. He's the first figure to practice evangelization. So if you need, you know, help with evangelization, you can pray to David. Um, this, this is heightened in the figure of his son, Solomon. So what do we know about King Solomon? Um, well, most people just know the story of the baby that was almost cut in half, right? What is that trying to tell us about Solomon? He was, he was a man of great wisdom, Right? But more than that, I think what's important to know about Solomon is that if we read through Scripture, we find, out, we find out that other kings and queens and dignitaries and people of prominence and importance are coming to Solomon. What does this mean? This essentially means that Solomon is no longer just the king over Israel. Solomon is a veritably an emperor. What's the difference between a kingdom and an empire? Well, a kingdom, a king, is just ruler over his particular nation, but an emperor is a king over other kings. All right? So the fact that other prominent figures and dignitaries and uh, royalty is coming to Solomon means that all the other nations are starting to recognize 
the figure and the vocation of Solomon, and they're starting to experience that universal blessing that was promised through Abraham, right? Even more than that, we can note that um, Solomon ends up taking many wives for himself, right? And that's going to end up being his downfall. But Solomon takes one woman in particular to be his wife. Does anybody remember who this woman is? Solomon takes the daughter of Pharaoh to be his wife. Pharaoh gives his daughter to be Solomon's wife. This is really hugely significant if you're a Jew because you know that not that long ago your ancestors were slaves of that people. And why would a king send his daughter to another king to be his wife? Because he needed to bolster his relationship with him. So the Jews, the Israelites used to be under the Egyptians. Now the Egyptians are under the Israelites, right? Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter. This is huge if you're a Jew and you're aware of your, your heritage, okay? Um, so in Solomon and in David, God's plan is beginning to come to fruition. Instead of destroying an entire people and starting over like he did with Noah— He's raised up a man who has raised up a family, who's raised up a nation, who has become an empire, right? And they're slowly starting to draw all the other pagan nations to the one true God, okay? Um, But like I said, Solomon falls. And I'm not going to go into too much detail because this is all in my Old Testament class. But Solomon falls, um, and the kingdom is divided, okay? Okay? So the Davidic kingdom is split in two, and um, eventually, and I'm going through like hundreds of years of history in a couple sentences, eventually the two kingdoms are taken into exile. And the northern kingdom um, never comes back from exile, and the southern kingdom comes back from exile, but they're never in the glorious state that they are during Solomon. And this is essentially where the people are when Jesus comes on the scene, okay? And Jesus comes, and when you understand um, the figure of David, and when you understand the figure of Solomon, you can see how Jesus comes as the new David, and he comes as the new Solomon. So let me give you an example. I said that Solomon, at the height of his reign, had kings coming to him, right? Does Jesus ever have kings come to him? He's just, a, and, and how old is Jesus when kings come to him? He's a baby, right? They start their journey to him before he is even born. This man is greater than Solomon. Jesus even says that one time. Do you remember? I, something greater than Solomon is here, okay? So kings are coming to him when he's just a child. Um... He's teaching in the temple when he's 12. He's teaching the other elders, okay? He clearly has, has some sort of authority. Um, Jesus' baptism, we can talk about his baptism. So Jesus goes down to a river, right, where he is baptized. King Solomon, when he's coronated, when he's made king, he goes down to a river. If you read about it in Kings, he goes down to a river and two people coronate, they make him king, um, they coronate Solomon. Um, the two people there, one of them is a prophet, and one of them is a priest. Well, what's interesting, who baptizes Jesus? John the Baptist. And we know that John the Baptist is a sort of prophet, right? In fact, Jesus refers to him as the greatest of prophets. But if you pay attention in Scripture, you would remember that when the angel Gabriel gives the announcement to John the Baptist's father that John the Baptist is going to be born. Where is John the Baptist's father? He's in the temple. He's serving his duties as a priest. Therefore, John the Baptist is both the priest and the prophet that was present and coordinated Solomon. We have a recapitulation, big Latin words, We have a recapitulation of the coronation of Solomon occurring at Jesus' baptism. 
Then what does Jesus do? He goes into the desert. Like I said, I don't have time to go into um, the fall of Solomon, but if you listen to my Old Testament class or really dig into the scriptures, you would realize that Solomon falls in three ways. Scripture is explicit of illustrating this. Solomon falls in three ways. He falls in the three ways, the only three ways that Moses forbade the king. So Moses forbade the king of Israel to do three things. Solomon does those three things. And then in the desert, Satan makes a threefold temptation to Jesus. And it correlates to the temptation of Solomon that he falls. And it correlates to um, the, the, what, what Moses forbids of the, of the Davidic king, all right? So Jesus is coronated in a manner like Solomon, and then he goes into the desert, and he undoes the fall of Solomon, right? He's clearly portraying himself as the new David, the new Solomon, okay? And then we have, uh, one one of my friends was joking with me. We were talking about um, the um, Luminous Mysteries. You guys know the Luminous Mysteries, right? So the the third Luminous Mystery is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. That's like so broad, So you have, like, the baptism of Jesus. You could, like, pinpoint that, right? Or you have, like, the ascension or something like that. And then then you have the proclamation of the kingdom of God, which is, like, the entire Bible, right? So essentially, I'm about to do that. I'm going to jump straight from the desert, temptation, and say that. And then we have the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Um, But it's interesting, right? It still is um, significant for what we're talking about because what is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming a kingdom, okay? It fits into everything that we're saying. So after this, he makes a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the same thing that Solomon did after he went down to the river and was coordinated. He makes a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he continues in a path that he intends but for us humans, this is confusing. So what does Jesus do? He takes upon his head the crown that he wants, which is a crown of thorns, and he mounts the throne that he wants, which is the cross. And from his throne on Calvary, Jesus dies for us, and by dying for us, He undoes our sin. He pays the penalty for it. And by paying the penalty for our sin, he opens the graces of heaven that allow us to be given a divine nature. And when we are given this divine nature in our baptism, our confirmation, our sacraments of initiation, when we are given this divine nature, we are made gods so that we can be in communion with God. So Christ with his crown on his throne of the cross draws all men to himself and he pours out universal blessing. So I'm not Jewish. Some of you might have a Jewish heritage but I highly doubt many of us are Jewish. We are those other nations that God called Abraham to make a family, to make a nation, to make a monarchy, to draw all the rest of the world to himself. And we are all drawn to this new kingdom, and this new kingdom is the church. Okay? So I don't know how I'm doing on time. Carrie, how am I doing on time? We're doing okay? So I really want you guys to get your money's worth. So I just gave you a really, really speedy tour of the Old Testament, or the the whole Bible, actually, right? So what I want to try to do for you now, though, is kind of fill in the blanks, because you're like, okay, this sounds great to me, but like, what about all the other stuff that's in the Bible? How does this all fit into it? So I'm going to try to open my Bible that's really difficult to open with one hand, and I'm going to try to do something even harder, and I'm going to try to find the table of contents. I was trying to do this with two hands earlier, and it was really struggles. It was really hard. Okay. You guys know Marcel Lachelle? When he's, like, trying to lift up the crayon, he's like, ugh, ugh. No? 
<laughs> you you can do it though. You want the microphone? Oh my. I couldn't even find the table of contents earlier. I was like, what? My Bible doesn't have table of contents? Okay, so while I'm trying to find the table of contents, here it is. <laughs> the Jews divide their Hebrew Bible into three parts. They divide it into the Torah, the law, which is the first five books of the Bible. They divide it into the prophets, which is obviously the prophets. And then they just put everything else in a section they call the writings. Okay? Well, this is helpful, but... Um, Christians also have a way of further dividing the Bible, and I think it's helpful. So, for instance, we do consider the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, right? We have that, and then we have what we call the historical books. So the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What covenants are covered in this section of the Bible? The first three? Is that correct? I don't even know the answer. So... uh, Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and the Davidic. So the first, the first five covenants are all covered in the first five books, okay? And then, I'm sorry, the first four covenants. The, se- the fifth covenant is in 2 Samuel 7. So the first four covenants are in the first five books of the Bible, okay? And then we're going to move into Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Tobit, Judith, Esther, and then when you hit Job, you move into the wisdom books. Okay, so all of that section of books—Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings—those are the historical books. These are the books that are going to take us from the time of Moses all the way through to uh, the story of David the story of Solomon. They're going to take us through the, the, the story of the divided kingdom. And they're also going to take us into um, the story of um, the exile, okay? And the prophets address the topic of the exile as well, because the prophets served during, before, and after the exile, depending on what prophet they were. And the prophets warned the Jews that if they not, did not repent of their ways, that they would go into exile. And uh, while they were in exile, they exhorted the Jews and said, still be faithful to the Lord, and the Lord will bring us out of exile, right? So that's what we have occurring in the prophets. And this should um, make our hearing the scriptures at Mass a little more comprehensible. Because if you hear a reading from the book of Isaiah, and then Isaiah is going on and on and on about, oh Israel, woe to you, you have been unfaithful, blah, 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 blah. You know he's talking about the Jews in exile, right? That's what we have in the prophets, okay? So what else do we have here? Let's talk about the wisdom books really briefly. So the wisdom books are unique. Um, with David, we have a new, a new heightened kingdom, okay? And we have a new covenant, right? And this covenant is very different from the Mosaic covenant. So in the Mosaic covenant, which is made in Exodus 19, God gives the Israelites a law right? What is this law summed up in? The Ten Commandments, okay? So we immediately, when we think the law of Moses, we think the Ten Commandments. But if you go to Exodus 19 and you flip through the following chapters, you'll find that there's all these stipulations about liturgy, how the Jews are supposed to worship God. So whenever God gives a law, it's both ethical and it's both liturgical, okay? So he gives those two aspects of the law in Exodus 19 to Moses. So we have this new covenant and this heightened kingdom that comes with David, and a new law is going to be given as well. So for instance, um, in 2 Samuel 7, after God makes the covenant with David, David goes before the Ark of the Covenant, and he's praying to God. And he says, God, you have shown me a Torah for all peoples, a law for all peoples. He's recognizing that in the Davidic covenant, God has given the Jews, the Israelites, a new law. Now, 
the Jews, like we talked about, they divide their Bible into three sections, right? And one of the sections is the law of Moses. And who wrote, according to tradition, who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses did, okay? So that's the law of Moses. Well, what book is attributed to David? Psalms, okay? And Psalms is in that section of wisdom books, okay? So I would say to you that the book of Psalms is the liturgical facet of the giving of the new law, okay? So the Psalms are going to move away from a focus on sacrifice and are going to focus more on internal uh, disposition to worship God. So we have this foretold in the prophets. So for example, in Hosea 6.6, the prophet says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You guys heard this before? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So I don't like the translation there. Mercy, it's not a very good translation. The Hebrew word is really loaded. The Hebrew word is hesed, and it means covenant faithfulness. So the prophet, God through the prophet, is telling the Jews he desires not so much sacrifice, he desires covenant faithfulness, okay? And so in the new law that's given through David, we have a movement away from sacrifice to this notion of covenant faithfulness. So in the Psalms, we hear over and over and over again about a person who is experiencing suffering, who is having a hard time staying faithful to God, but what does he do always in the end? He remains faithful to God. So that's the liturgical facet of the new law. Let's talk really, really briefly about the ethical facet of the new law, which I think encompasses the other books of wisdom. So Proverbs, for example, is one of the books of wisdom. Proverbs is very lucid, right? What do we get in Proverbs? We don't get a lot of thou shall not, thou shall not, thou shall not. What do we get? We get a lot of positive advice. And what do I mean by positive advice? Well, there's two kinds of commands that you can give someone. You could give them a negative command, and you can say, do not do this, which is a lot of what the Ten Commandments are, right? You could give someone a positive command, and you could say, do this. The thing about a positive command is that a positive command has no limits. So, for instance, when Jesus says, I give you a new law, love one another as I have loved you. Oh, so when have I loved someone enough? There's no height. There's no end to this commandment, right? So the Proverbs, as positive advice, as positive commands, give us a foreshadowing of the new law, the positive law, the positive commandment that Jesus is going to give us in the New Testament. Um, First and second Maccabees and the Old Testament Um, They're historical books as well, okay? So we already talked about those. The New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Tell us about Christ. Acts of the Apostles tells us about the rise of the church. And then we have the epistles of St. Paul. Now, I would venture to say that the epistles of St. Paul can be so confusing to hear and to read sometimes because St. Paul, I would say, was the very first theologian. So he's taking what we have in the New Testament and Acts of the Apostles, and he is theologizing about it, okay? He's expounding on it. He's trying to teach the Gentiles and the Jews what this means. And in fact, St. Paul was so confusing for the people, um, purportedly, that Peter, James, and John, their letters that are in the New Testament are commentaries on the letters of St. Paul. Because St. Paul was so confusing for the early Christians that Peter, James, and John wrote their own commentaries on the letters of St. Paul, okay? To elucidate the meaning. And then what are we left with? We're left with the book of Revelation, okay? And Revelation is probably the most under, misunderstood, one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible. But what can we say that the book of Revelation is about? The book of Revelation is about the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, the book of Revelation takes place in heaven. St. John is on the island of Patmos, and he has this vision of heaven torn open, and he sees what's happening in heaven. And he sees a lot of things, but the most prominent thing he sees is a wedding banquet taking place. Now, is this foreign to the whole thing that we've been talking about? 
I would say no. And in fact, it is the culmination of the entire story that's in this book. Because when I was talking to you about covenants, I gave you examples of two covenants, right? What were those examples? Marriage and adoption. I would say to you that by our baptism, we, and you've probably heard this before, we are brought into adoption with God, right? He, by oath, gives us his divine nature so that we can be in union with him. But what is a more intimate union than adoption? I would say it's the nuptial covenant. And what do I mean by nuptial? I mean the marriage covenant, but I want to say nuptial. Like, have you heard of being invited to someone's nuptials, right? It means their wedding. I emphasize the word nuptial because I don't want you to think that when I talk about a marriage covenant that I mean sexuality, all right? I just mean an intimate relationship with God, okay? So we're brought in by baptism into an adoptive covenant with God, but I would say that God wants to be even more intimate with us, and so he extends a nuptial covenant to us. And we see this in the book of Revelation, the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? What does this mean in our life. Let's talk again really briefly about the sacraments of initiation. So I said at baptism, God gives us the divine nature, his divine nature, so that we could be in communion with him. Confirmation seals and completes that sacrament. And in the United States, we celebrate those sacraments in an order that is not typical for the rest of the world. And a lot of theologians have a lot of debate about whether they should do this, But in a lot of places, baptism and confirmation are celebrated. And then at the very culmination, we have First Communion, right? And so baptism gives us this divine nature so that we could be in communion with God. Confirmation seals this divine nature. And in the Eucharist, we have the most intimate union, this side of heaven, that we could possibly have with God. So in a marriage... A man and a woman come together, swear an oath to each other, and enter into the most intimate bond possible, and they give themselves to one another, spiritually and bodily, right? The two become one flesh. When you go to Mass on Sunday, and you go to Holy Communion, you take into yourself God. And you become one flesh with God. The wedding feast of the Lamb is the culmination of all of Scripture. And we have that, this side of heaven, in the Eucharist.